Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Terry Gino continues our series on the letters of Paul to the church at Corinth. Today, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And now, here's Carrie. Thank you, praise group. Uh, I don't know if you have a name for yourselves, but judging by the three of you, you could be called the Royal Hooks. Uh, Dave, <coughs> Dave mentioned to me before I came up if I believed in free speech. I said I did. So he said, go ahead and speak for free. So I will. <laughs> We're continuing uh, our study on 2 Corinthians. And we're doing this morning chapter 4, verses 1 to 18. Let's begin by reading chapters, or sorry, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In these six verses, Paul is continuing where he left off in chapter 3, defending the gospel of grace. In verse 2 of today's reading, his wording suggests that he is answering some criticism which has been aimed at the gospel that he preaches. Paul's critics have accused him of adulterating the gospel, probably by not requiring persons to observe Jewish laws in order to become Christians. Paul was writing in response to those who had come from Jerusalem to Corinth with a form of Christianity that insisted people should adopt Jewish customs before becoming Christians. The issue of the difference between a religion of freedom through the spirit and a religion of bondage through the law is still very relevant today. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Paul saw that mixing certain elements of the Old Covenant with the New Covenant was prostituting the gospel and undermining the work of the Spirit. Instead of freedom and liberty, he felt that this introduced death and condemnation. Legalists are always busy working, working setting out new sets of rules for new places, new circumstances, and new generations. Religion that is based on a lit, upon a list of things that Christians do or don't do will usually fade into significant irrelevance. 
There has always been something in legalism which causes people to miss the heart of things and become fascinated with the surface and the superficial. So how can we tell when the true gospel is being spoken? Paul Ellis, in his writings, gives us six examples of what makes the new covenant new. The six examples of what makes the new covenant new. In the old law-based covenant, you reap what you sow. But in the new, we reap what Christ has sown. In the old, you did to get. But in the new, we get because Christ has done it all. This is grace. And grace declares that all is a gift. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Number two, it's a covenant of rest. Under the old, it was do, do, do. But in the new, it's done, done, done. Faith is a rest, not a work. Only when we rest in the finished work of Calvary can God begin his good work in us. And as his grace abounds, good works abound. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. <clears throat> good works don't produce grace, but grace produces good works. The old covenant was characterized by ceaseless effort in the pursuit of holy demands that could never be met. But the new covenant is rest and peace in the Holy Spirit. Number three, it's a covenant of new life. Old covenant preaching will make your mind dull or stupid and harden your heart to the goodness of God. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. But the new covenant preaching removes the veil and reveals the Lord's glory. As you behold him, you become like him, transformed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Under the old, the best you could hope for was self-improvement that never lasts. But in the new, you become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. A brand new person with a brand new heart and a new spirit. Born of the Spirit, you, know, you are no more a prisoner of sin, but a co-heir with Christ. Old covenant preachers focus on you and what you must do. New covenant preachers focus on Christ and what he has done. Under law, God requires. Under grace, God provides. Number four, it's a covenant of union. In the old covenant, God lived in a temple that you could never enter. But in the new, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. You are one with the Lord, and as he is holy, righteous, perfect forever, so are you in this world. 1 John chapter 4, 17. You don't need more faith, more anointing, or more of God. That's old covenant thinking. You are complete in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. The new growth happens as we acknowledge every good thing that is already ours in Christ. Philemon chapter 1, verse 6. And number five, it's a covenant that cannot, chapter 1, verse 6. And number five, it's a covenant that cannot tell promises to God, but the new rests on the better promises of God himself. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. 
In the old, you loved God and you forgave others because it was commanded of you. But in the new, you love and forgive because he first loved and forgave you. The old covenant was between God and Israel. But the new covenant is is between God the Father and God the Son. God holds up both ends of this arrangement. He swears by himself and he gives us his spirit as a guarantee of what is to come. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Under the old covenant, you were blessed if you obeyed. But under the new, you are blessed because Christ obeyed. Your salvation is eternally secure because it is Jesus who saves and keeps you. Exodus 19.8 says, In the old covenant, man says, I will. And he breaks his word again and again. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8 to 12 says, In the new covenant, God says, I will. And he keeps his word forever and ever. Number six, it's a covenant that reveals your father's heart. God gave grace to the first man, Adam, and called him a son. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. But Adam ran and hid. God gave grace to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the children of Israel said, no thanks. We'd rather go our own way. At Mount Sinai, the children of Israel swapped a covenant based on God's faithfulness for one based on their own. It was the forbidden tree all over again, and it broke our Father's heart. An old covenant emphasis on rules will cause you to view God as a bookkeeper, recording, recording all your sins and as a judge condemning your failures. But Jesus says, God is not like that. He is your heavenly father who loves you and holds nothing against you. He yearns for his prodigals to come home. Here's a simple test. Many Christians don't know what makes the new covenant new. And as a result, they're working to get what they already have. So how can we tell if we're walking in the new covenant Ask yourself, am I God's child, servant, or friend? Is God my judge, employer, or father? If you don't see God as your loving father and yourself as his dearly beloved child, you've not fully comprehended all that Christ accomplished on your behalf. In his 1973 book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name of God. Before Jesus, also no one, almost no one, called God Father. After Jesus, every Testament writer did. Jesus came to reveal your father. Father. 
And this is what makes the new covenant new. Perhaps this is what Paul was facing by his critics who wanted the new Christians to observe the Jewish laws. But Paul stands firm. Paul was encouraged by the fact that the gospel that he had been given to share centered in a person. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Two words, Jesus Christ, emphasize the message of the early church. <clears throat> the apostles and the evangelists didn't preach a book, a ritual, an institution, or a set of rules, but a person. To them, the world evangelization was the sharing of Jesus Christ with the whole world. While the Gospels record many of the acts and teachings of Christ's ministry, they are meant to point a person to the living Christ. Though the Apostle Paul did a great deal of writing about the atoning work of Christ, it was not a theory of atonement that he preached, but a person who could forgive sins. It is this aspect of the gospel that makes it possible for all Christians to become witnesses. Evangelism in, most, in the most wholesome form is one believer introducing someone else to the person of Jesus Christ. Paul had understood from the beginning that sin had created a veil over people's understanding and that people who are lost are suffering from a kind of spiritual blindness. This is why the Holy Spirit is so important to the work of sharing the gospel. He can lift the veil and open our spiritual eyes. Let's continue by reading verse 7 to 18. <clears throat> One thing I want to mention, uh, the openers, uh, the praise group, basically gave my whole sermon in all the words of their song, so you're hearing it again. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. 
For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In these 12 verses, Paul gives us four reasons why in the midst of great difficulty, he never loses heart. And each one of these reasons could and should apply to us. First, Paul knew that the real treasure was Christ and that he, Paul, was merely a vessel that carried it. There is no more beautiful description of the Christian life than we have this treasure in jars of clay, or as some versions say, in earthen vessels. Kenneth L. Chafin writes, I have a teapot in which the outside glaze is cracked, the spout is chipped, and the lid was broken long ago. Sometimes I look at the teapot and I'm reminded that I'm an earthen vessel much like it. In places, my skin is scarred and wrinkled. There are some chipped places from the mistakes I've made. And there are many things in my life that don't match. But the most amazing thing is that the treasure I bear is not diminished by the vessel. Rather, the vessel is made more valuable by the treasure it contains. Second, Paul was encouraged because life had not thrown more at him than he could handle. When we read verses 7 to 10, we're likely to catch only the bad things that happened to him and to notice the words hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. If Paul had only told us the bad things that had happened to him as a servant of the Lord, we would have felt that he would be justified in being bitter and maybe even leaving the ministry. But we need to go back and pick up the other end of the sentence where he talked about being not crushed, not in despair, not forsaken, and of the life of Jesus being manifest in his body. If we read carefully what he has written, we hear the note of celebration that even though life had knocked him down, it had not knocked him out, and he was still standing. As God's people, we're a lot tougher than we sometimes think, and it's encouraging for us to realize that we can cope with a great deal with the strength that Christ gives us. Third, Paul was encouraged by God's ability to renew his spirit when circumstances got him down. Though he was confronted by both the aging process and the possibility of death, he could still write, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Paul's strenuous and demanding schedule had taken its toll on his body and his spirit. But he said that through God's spirit, he daily experienced renewal. And this helped him to face life now and gave him hope, even about death. And fourth, Paul was encouraged about his ministry when he set what he was doing into the larger context of things. In verse 17 and 18, he put the moment in the context of eternity and the visible in the context of the invisible. And it gave him a different perspective. 
Often when we get a little discouraged about what we're getting done, it helps us to step back and get a broader perspective. We're living in a world of instant everything. And this has robbed us of the perspective of time. Time has a way of reversing judgments, and eternity has a way of telling us what was valuable and what was permanent and exposing what was temporary and useless. Woven through all of Paul's encouragement are the beginnings of a discussion of death and a celebration of the hope that we have in the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, when Paul wrote, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Many Christians felt that they would still be alive at the time of Christ's second coming. It's encouraging that Paul felt that the same God, whose spirit was renewing him day by day, was the one who had raised up Christ and will, as he says in verse 14, also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. So when we're discouraged, let's remember there's nothing better than being absolutely sure that the most powerful being in the universe adores us as his own child. And this is precisely the confidence that the Holy Spirit offers us. Those chapters in the book of John, where we read of Christ's compassion for and care for his disciples, are merely a small example of the meaningful relationship and deep love that motivates God's affection towards us. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, we read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse we were under so that we could receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this was not a small promise. Jesus suffered a grueling death so that we could have the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. Because of Jesus, we have received this promise. Again and again, in the scriptures, we read about being God's children, being led by his spirit, and how we have received the spirit of adoption. We have been chosen and adopted into the family of God. And now we are, that we are part of God's family, the Spirit causes us to call out, Abba, Father. It takes faith to believe that God is truly like the prodigal son's father, who from afar saw, saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. And so there can be, not be any doubt. The father made it absolutely clear that his son was to be forgiven with no questions asked. He invited his son back into his life without bitterness or requiring penance or guilt. In the same way, God's spirit speaks truth to our hearts such as, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. And nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 39. 
and he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. In closing, I'd like to read part of a sermon that Charles Spurgeon gave in the 1800s. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. First, the apostle says, you are saved. Not you shall be, or you may be, but you are saved. Nor does he say you are partly saved, or hopeful of salvation. Your salvation is not a future salvation, or a historical salvation, but a present salvation. You need to be clear about this, as you will never rest until you know that you are presently saved. Second, you are saved by grace. As far as I know, no one claims to be saved now except those who believe that salvation is by grace. I know people who would not dare to claim they are saved now, but who hope to be saved later. They hope that after years of watchful holiness, they may be saved at the end. Their ceaseless works and endless prayers testify to the incompletelessness of any salvation not based on grace. When you think about it, salvation can come no other way. How can a man condemned by sin reverse the condemnation of sin that he has wrought? How can his law-keeping blot out his law-breaking? No matter how well he lives, his future will always be marred by his past. There is nothing he can do to remove the stain of his old sins. Of those who are trying to merit salvation through works, none would ever presume to say, I have saved myself by what, but why, but what I have done. I have stood beside the deathbeds of godly men, and not once have I heard of any of them express confidence in themselves or their religion. Far from it. The nearer such men came to heaven, the more they trust in Jesus and distrust themselves. According to both scripture and common sense, salvation can only be through the free favor of God. Third, you are saved by grace, through faith. Suppose I said to you that as sinners you must do certain things to be saved, and you did them. Such a salvation would be a reward for your work. It would not be grace. Of course, it is impossible for the sinner to save himself. So if we can't work for a salvation that is earned, why do we think we can work for one that is freely given? Salvation by grace can only be gripped by the hand of faith. Perhaps you think you can be saved by observing religious ceremonies. You're a Christian or baptized. You receive the Holy Sacrament or you come to the Lord's table. I ask you, do these activities bring salvation? You dare not say yes, for if you did, yours would not be a salvation by grace. Or perhaps you need to feel, you think you need to feel sorrow or joy before you acknowledge you are saved. How foolish. You might as well hope to see with your ear and grasp sunlight in your hands. Feelings are like clouds on a windy day. 
and are hardly the means by which we apprehend the eternal truths of an unchanging God. Fourth, the salvation grace-faith package is not of ourselves. None of it. It is not the result of our merits, our works, or any innate goodness. How can eternal life spawn from the bones of the dead? You can take an unregenerated person and educate them to the highest degree, and they will remain dead in their sins, unless a higher power comes in and saves them from themselves. Grace brings into the heart an entirely foreign element. It does not improve or perpetuate. It kills and makes alive. Salvation, like resurrection, requires outside intervention. We cannot do any part of it ourselves. You may say, I turned to God by myself. Did you? Do you attribute your turning to some some good quality inside you that your unsaved neighbor doesn't have? Of course not. It was the Spirit of God who convinced you, enlightened you, and guided you to the foot of the cross. Gratefully, we confess that it must be so. None of us would dare dream to take any honor to ourselves for our conversion. Fifth and finally, salvation is wholly a gift from God. And what a gift it is. You could not forge a work so rare and costly as that which cost Jesus his lifeblood. Like a seamless garment, it will cover you and make you glorious. Will you have it? No, I will weave a garment on my own. What a proud fool you are. You spin cobwebs. You weave dreams. Oh, that you would freely take what Christ upon the cross declared to be finished. God's gifts are unlike our gifts. Salvation is a perfect and everlasting gift that never rusts or fades away. If my Lord Jesus gives you salvation at this moment, you have it, and you have it forever. He will never take it back again. And if he does not take it from you, who can? If he saves you now through faith, you are so saved that you will never perish. And no one will ever pluck you out of his hands. With the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Let's bow in prayer. And thank you, Lord, for being with us. Thank you for the message we've heard and for this great uh, salvation that you have brought. And we thank you that uh, you've brought so many here to hear it. And we pray that as we go forth this week that we would share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time. <laughs>